Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in 1 John chapter 1. If you're new with us, we have been going through a series on the life of David. Today, we are going to take a, a pause in that series, and we're going to just uh, walk through 1 John chapter 1. John opens up in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 1 by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This, verse five, is the message we have heard from the beginning, from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I wanna to talk to you for a few moments about authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. The writer of Hebrews says it is living and it is active. There is life in your scriptures. So Father God, I do pray that that life will connect with ours. I, I pray, Lord God, that there are, there are some people who are gonna be listening to your word at this moment who do not know you as Lord and Savior. And I, I pray that you will, you will regenerate, you will bring new life to them. God, there's others who, who think they are saved, who are operating under the illusion of salvation, like like these false teachers John is making reference to. I pray, Lord God, that, that your spirit would do its work of conviction and that they too would get saved. Younger, irreligious brothers need to be saved. Older, religious brothers need to be saved. And God, in the end, I do pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root. And God, I pray that we would leave here looking more like you because we have met with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll let you in on a little um, um, secret for, for we pastors. One of, the, one of the tensions we feel as pastors when we do funeral services, it's to put people in heaven. And this gets especially difficult when, I hate to say it this way, when when the people you have to eulogize, it was just evident. They did not live uh, an exemplary life. 
but you don't want to stand up and say anything disparaging about the person. So there's this tension that we feel. Now, there, there is a story that they say is true. I spent some years in LA. It's really a popular story among the Southern California black preaching fraternity. It's a story that was told of a, of a pastor who was leading a church, and he had this deacon who, who just made his life miserable. Every time this pastor would cast new vision, this this deacon would resist it. Every time this pastor would want to launch this new initiative, this, this deacon would vote against it. Um, one time, this deacon even tried to raise up and start a coup to get the pastor removed. Well, at, at some point, this deacon died. I don't know if we'd blame that on the sovereignty of God or what. This deacon died, and his wife, his widow, calls this pastor and says, Pastor, it'd be, it'd be an honor if you could preach, uh, preach my late husband's funeral, to which the pastor, and again, this is supposed to be a true story, says, I'm sorry, ma'am, I, I can't do that. She said, why not? He goes, well, I think, I think you know. Um, your husband didn't like me, and I know this isn't a very pastoral thing to say. I didn't like him. Uh, so I'm sorry, I just can't do the funeral. And she pleaded and pleaded. He just dug in. He was resolute. I am not doing this funeral. Well, uh, word must have gotten around to some of the other pastors in the community. They called this pastor and said, look, man, you have to do the funeral. You, you, just, you just have to do it. Scripture calls us to forgive, and you have to do it. So he decides to do it on the condition of, I'm not gonna put this guy in heaven, I'm not gonna say things about him that aren't true, that's fine, just do the funeral. And so the day the funeral comes, it's his time to get up, a true story to give the eulogy, the casket's right here. And he gets up and he says, here lies, we'll call him John Doe, here lies John Doe, he wasn't worth a plugged nickel. Ushers, you can receive the body. That was it. That was his eulogy. I mean, every mouth is... Is, is open. We're like, are you kidding me right now? And yet this pastor refused to put him in heaven. Now, I would say that's a bit extreme, but that is kind of the lengths to which John goes as he writes this letter. I don't know if you've ever read 1 John, but it's not a bedtime story. The book of 1 uh, John is it's deeply disturbing. It, it rattles our cages. John is bucking up against this whole notion of a group of individuals who, who think they're saved and yet there's no fruit in their life. What John is actually dealing with is a, is a group of false teachers who have crept into the church there at Ephesus and some other local churches. And, and these individuals are saying they're saved and yet there's nothing about their life that, that authenticates their profession of faith. These individuals are, are, are not only kind of modeling a false gospel, they're teaching a false gospel and they're leading many people astray. In fact... Here's John writing the church of Ephesus. This letter will be circulated. You need to understand that what John is dealing with was actually prophesied by the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20. 
Paul is leaving Ephesus. He's about to board a ship there and he's gathered around with the Ephesian elders, individuals he has spent a lot of time pouring into and look at what he says to them in Acts chapter 20, years before our text is written. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things Things to draw away the disciples after them. Boy, if that wasn't a true prophecy. Now, years later, this is exactly what John is dealing with. John is dealing specifically with a group of people who, who are not only living a false gospel, they're teaching a false gospel. The nature of what they're saying is uh, we are completely free uh, in, in God. Uh, we're denying the humanity of Jesus Christ. You can kind of live any way you want to and have fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. You are kind of this free, autonomous being who, who really gets to kind of make it up as you go along and sprinkle a little Jesus along for the ride. And I think this is a word we need to hear in the Bible Belt. I'm not picking on you. I might have moved here from California, but I grew up in Atlanta. Go Braves, go dogs. Wonderful time of the year for us. So I, I know all about Bible Belt Christianity. There's a lot of similarities between these false teachers and Bible Belt cultural Christianity. Bible Belt Christianity is comfortable to sprinkle a, a little bit of Jesus, not too much to make me fanatical, but, but, but just enough to make me acceptable. Bible Belt Christianity kind of views Jesus as my administrative assistant. I, I want him in the mix, just not on the throne. Bible Belt Christianity is like um, auditing a class at university. When we audit a class, here's what we're saying. Give me the information, just not the responsibility. G give me the information on my terms. L let me learn something. Let me come to class when I feel like it, but I ain't staying up and burning the midnight oil. I'm not going to be, you know, preparing for tests. I'm not going to be writing papers. I, I just want just enough. Let me, let me audit Jesus. And John pulls no punches. He would say to this person, that might look good, but that's not authentic Christianity. The letter of 1 John is all about authentic Christianity. He gives three tests in his letter of authentic Christianity. He gives the doctrinal test. He gives the lifestyle test, and he gives the love test. The first two tests are, are in our passage of Scripture. He's talking about the doctrinal test, and then we're going to get into, beginning in verse 5, he's going to move to the lifestyle test. He is just throwing before us what authentic Christianity looks like. I want you to fasten your seatbelts. You're probably going to feel a bit overwhelmed. 
If you're new with us and you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a great Sunday to come because you're gonna get a real look at what the Bible teaches when it comes to authentic, saving faith. But if you are a regular here, there should be a sense in which we leave this message almost like what Paul would tell the Corinthians, let a man examine himself. Is, is this true of me? Is this, is this who I am? I mean, all week long, it feels like God's been taking me to the woodshed as I've been pouring over this, this passage. I love how John begins his letter. There's no, hey, how you doing? There is no, hey, girl, what's going on? There's no, there's no greetings. There's no introduction. He just goes zero to 100. Wham, bam, he's right there. He begins with the doctrinal test, and it is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. We know he's talking about Jesus because he, he says things like, verse 2, the life was made manifest. He, 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 he talks about Jesus at the end of verse one being the word of life. This is eerily similar to how he writes his gospel, the gospel of John, right out the gate. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word there, this is all about Jesus, but, but I, I want you to pay attention. Don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Look at the sensory terms he uses when it comes to Christ. Verse one, that which was from the beginning, hear it, sensory term, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have, have touched concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and, and speaking of Jesus was made manifest to us. I love it. John is saying, I'm not telling you what I heard from other people. John is saying, I'm not passing on to you something that I read. When it comes to Jesus Christ, I, I saw him, I touched him, I looked upon him. Now, now, John, why are you using all these sensory terms when it comes to Jesus? Well, he's using it because there was a false teaching going on that day uh, that would later on, later on, take shape into, and morph into something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this dualistic framework of life that essentially says matter is evil, spirit is good. And because they said matter is evil, they denied the humanity of Christ. Because they said matter is evil, God would never come and take on flesh and, and dwell among us. They denied the humanity of Christ. And I want you to understand, that's a big deal. No humanity of Christ, no death of Christ. No death of Christ, no atoning for our sins. No atonement for our sins, we're still stuck in our sins, headed for an eternity in hell. So what does John do right out the gate? No, 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 I, I, I want you to understand Jesus Christ, yes, is fully God, but he's also fully human. I saw him, I heard him, I touched him, I looked upon him. The humanity of Christ is real. This is what he's saying. Uh, okay, Brian, what in the world does that have to do with me? I mean, I haven't run into any Gnostics at Drive Shack down the street. What in the world does this have to do with how I live my life? Life. Please, please know broader principle. Please know 
what would later become known as Gnostics, this false philosophy that denied the humanity of Christ, please know they didn't deny the existence of Christ. They they would say they believed Christ. So their issue wasn't unbelief as much as it was wrong belief when it comes to Christ. Authentic Christianity is centered on Christ. The great question of life that everyone must answer is, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? In almost every evangelistic encounter I've ever had in my life in which I'm sharing my faith and that person ultimately did not yield or submit, we got, we got stuck in one of two places. Either they got stuck on the concept of sin and, and, and not believing they were uh, essentially bad people in need of a savior, or they got stuck as it relates to who Jesus is. When I go to the car, um, when I go to the airport, a lot of times I, I hire a, a car service and it's, it's I, I live 15 minutes from the airport. So it's, in some senses, it's a waste of money, but it's not because the person who's been taking me to the airport, I've been sharing the gospel with them. So that's, that's money well spent. But I'm like, I need you to hurry up and say yes to Jesus, okay? And so I've been sharing my, my faith with this person and this person says, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus was a prophet. I believe that Jesus was a teacher, a, a wonderful teacher. I believe that Jesus was a good person. I just can't accept the fact that he is God in the flesh who died in my place and for my sins. Obviously, we would say that person is not a Christian because what you believe about the person of Jesus, everything rises and falls on that. All right, Brian, so when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow, specifically, what does the humanity of Jesus mean for me practically as a follower of Jesus Christ? It means everything. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 15, look at it with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Practically speaking, the humanity of Jesus is not just something in which we begin our faith journey with, not just the fact that he died in my place and for my sins, but the humanity of Jesus continues to reverberate in very practical ways in this journey of sanctification. He can relate. He can sympathize. Having taken on flesh and dwelt among us, there's just this sense of, I feel you. We need to hear that. If you've ever been betrayed in your life, Jesus nods his head in solidarity. I know what it's like to have a Judas. If you've ever, women, if you've ever felt like individuals have used their power in such a way to manipulate and oppress you, Jesus says, hashtag me too. As a minority who knows the loneliness sometimes of the minority experience. Jesus Christ didn't come as an emperor or a senator. He came as an incarnated Jew, a minority. He says, I get you. Humanity of Jesus continues to reverberate in very practical ways. So when we struggle, he's not sitting there in condemnation. Because he took on flesh, he can feel what we feel and relate to us. The journey of our experience. Not only that, but John continues the doctrinal test. He moves now from the person of Jesus to the authority of scriptures. 
Look at what he says, verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Let me just stop right here and say this real quickly. John now is getting to this idea of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we today might call a subset of that, which is evangelism. And he gives us a wonderful framework. John's proclamation was centered on two things. It was anchored in the person of Jesus Christ, but he tethers the person of Jesus Christ to his personal experience. I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. By the way, this is a wonderful framework for successful, God-pleasing evangelism. It is giving people the truth of who Jesus is, but showing them in very personal ways how the truth of Jesus has intersected with my human experience and changed my life. I'm giving you Jesus, but I want you to understand. I was there. I saw him. He's changed me. And then he goes on to say in verse three, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He's writing in a language called Greek. The Greek word for fellowship means that which is common. Who is the us there? I love it. Scholars tell us the us there are the leaders of the church, namely the apostles. Now this brings up a question How do we today in 2022 have fellowship with the apostles? Well, the legacy of the apostles is the written word. It's what they wrote. So do you see it? He now moves in the doctrinal test, all this under the doctrinal test from the person of Jesus Christ to now the scriptures. He is saying that the authority of the word of God is grounds in which we have fellowship with the apostles. That is the message he is proclaiming to us. Authentic Christianity affirms the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He's he's fully human. We affirm that truth, but we also affirm the authority of the scriptures. A couple weeks ago, I was at a national conference with some of our leaders from from the Summit Church, and um, it was probably the most awkward ministry moment of my life. They wanted me to sit on a panel, panel made up of four people, um, and the, the subject matter of the panel is, um, was, is Christianity homophobic? Now, I knew that going in. Um, I didn't really do my homework because I didn't know who else would be on the panel. I should have asked that question. Walking out onto the stage, I discovered that all four of us profess Christ, but two of the other panelists um, are self-described um, gay Christian pastors, so we're sitting there, the four of us, and uh, they asked me to start off. And so I, you know, I just kind of ease into it. And I just, yeah, I want to apologize for the way the, the historic conservative church has, has treated our, our siblings in the LGBTQ plus community. I think it's horrific. It's been a poor representation of Jesus Christ. But I told them, I, I don't want to make any apologies as we go along in this conversation. Um, my starting and ending point is not my experience. It's the word of God. So we were going along playing nice with each other until one of the self-described gay Christian pastors says, hey, you can't, you can't trust the word of God. It's a piece of fiction. It's written by flawed humans. You can't trust it. And I'm just, as she's saying this, I'm like, oh gosh. Well, it's like, now you didn't talk about my mama. <laughs> right? Like, 
you know, I, I, all right, now I got to say something, right? Um, and as nicely and kindly as I could, I pushed against it. But in a way, for her to make that statement makes all the sense in the world. And let's not be too hard on her. I think we all know people like that. Scholar D.A. Carson says this. He said, whenever someone questions the authority of Jesus Christ, I want to ask them, who are you sleeping with? Do you see what he's saying there? The real problem isn't the authority of Jesus Christ. The real issue is, I want to live my life. And so let me bend the Bible into submission to my life instead of me bending my life into submission under the authority of Christ. That's the real issue. So when you get so-called Christians who want to play gymnastics with the word of God, their real issue isn't necessarily the word of God. If you just look under the hood, there's probably some lifestyle thing that they're going, that doesn't line up, so let me get the Bible to line up with me. What would John say about this person? You may profess Christ, but if you deny the authority of Scripture, John says, you lie and do not practice the truth. Wow. Verse five, he now moves from the doctrinal test to the final test, which is the lifestyle test. He says in verse five, this is the message we have We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk, walk, walk in darkness. Do you see what he's saying there? We lie and do not practice the truth. But verse seven, if we walk in the light, walk, 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 fellowship. He's now getting to how we live our lives. John isn't finished yet. If Christianity was just merely all about what I believe and let me have right beliefs about who Jesus is, then John would have stopped the test at the end of verse three. But if what I believe about Christ does not impact my heart, my feet, my lifestyle, that orthodoxy does not come to bear on orthopraxy, John says not saved. Mark Dever says it this way. Will you look at it with me? For us today, this means the most orthodox person in the world who has every point of doctrine correct is not a Christian if his or her right thinking is not coupled with right living. Wow. So here are these false teachers. I'm saved, but I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm saved... But, but I, I can kind of navigate and negotiate life, dying, denying core things about who Jesus is. I'm free, I'm free. And I love what John does here. It's philosophically masterful. He doesn't enter into the argument through the ideological door. He doesn't enter into the argument uh, 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 through, through even necessarily a theological door. I, I know that's kind of wrong. Everything's theology here in the scriptures. But he enters it more through the relational door. 
It says we walk in the light, walk in the light, walk in the light. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with one another. He, he's, he's over and over again, he's pointing to relationships. Why is he doing this? Hear this. Because John understands a key attribute of authentic relationships is they change you. They change you. If, if you're in a relationship, a marriage, let's say, and everything's all about you, and I can, I can do what I want to do, and you know, I, who needs to wear a wedding ring, and I'm questioning monogamy, and I, I don't have to come home, and if, you, if that's you, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to give you a word, that relationship ain't going to last. But I can tell you, being married for 23 years, strapping into the covenant of marriage, I've been changed. <laughs> My wife is over the top clean. I'm over the top cluttered. Um, I remember one morning I was, I was brushing my teeth um, at, at, our, at our home there um, in San Jose, I'm brushing my teeth, and, and she goes, honey, um, if, if you really wanna bless me. I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Seven something in the morning, we getting started. <laughs> she said, if you really want to bless me, I've noticed you've got this habit when you, when you finish brushing your teeth, you just kind of put the toothbrush down on the countertop and the toothpaste comes out and it stains my countertop. Notice how she says my countertop stains. And I've learned it is her countertop, uh, <laughs> stains my countertop. So, so she says, if you really want to bless me, it would really be helpful if you just take the toothbrush when you're done, dangle it over the edge of the sink so that the bristles are pointed downward into the sink so that the residue drips into the sink. I heard someone back there say, amen, uh, drips into the, into the sink. And I'm going, are you serious right now? This is this one. Are you serious? And the Holy Spirit says, shut up. <laughs> and just do it. You know what's funny about that? A couple of months later, man, I'm preaching somewhere hundreds of miles away. And I'm, I'm, I get in the bed, brush my teeth, get in the bed, and I'm laughing my head off. Because what has this girl done to me? Hundreds of miles away, and I've finished brushing my teeth, and I dangle that bad boy <laughs> in that best western over the sink. Oh, oh it gets gooder. I was in the shower one time and my wife says, honey, if you really want to bless me, and she hands me a squeegee. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Holy Spirit says, shut up. And I'm just squeegeeing this bad boy. Keep that between us, okay? These are true stories. Here's what I'm trying to say. For better or worse, Relationships change you. If you're the same person in marriage that you were single years ago, that's not good. Relationships change you. So do, do, do you get what John is saying? How can you claim to be in relationship with God and at the same time go, I can do whatever I want? Those things don't line up. And then John goes on to say, but if we walk in the light 
as he is in the light. I love it. He's writing in Greek. The Greek word for walk is peripateo. It's used here, obviously, figuratively for how one conducts their life. It's the same word Paul would use in Galatians chapter five when he says, but I say walk by the spirit. What he means there is conduct your life under the domain of the spirit. In our text, he says, if we walk in the light, I love it, that metaphor for light, that image for light used almost 200 times in the Bible, almost always positive. Here, that metaphor for light means God's divine revelation, which is his word. It's what theologians, when they call, when they talk about the Bible, they, they, they call it special revelation. He says, if we walk in the light, that is, if I live under the domain of the authoritative word of God, he goes, now I got fellowship with him. And I got fellowship with other people. Bible Belt Christianity is okay with looking like I'm in the light while reality says I'm in darkness. So, so, so just imagine, just imagine I'm the boss at your work. And I say to you, I pull you in, I say, look, man, I, I got to go out of the country for a couple months. I'm going to Europe. I'm really concerned for how the, how the company's gonna be run. Uh, here's a letter just kind of outlining my, my instructions and expectations for how to run, how to run the company. And, and you, go, you go, I got it. And so I give you the letter. I board a plane, go over to Europe. While I'm in Europe, I, I write more emails to you. Just, oh, I forgot this and you need to do this. And I'm just writing emails to you about instructions for how I want the company managed. Then I come back and first day in the office, man, it looks like y'all partied the whole time. The place is trashed. There's chaos, customers aren't really being cared for. I'm like, man, what in the world happened? Did, didn't you get my, my letters? Didn't you get my emails? And you say to me, man, you are an amazing writer. We read those letters every single morning. Had a little cup of coffee, journal, read the letters. We even memorized certain sections of your letters. Some of those letters are so inspiring. We took a couple passages, we put a frame on it. It's right there on the wall while the whole office is in chaos. I'm like, thank you for the compliment, but did you do it? Bible Belt Christianity, we're really good at reading letters. Memorizing letters. Framing letters. John doesn't mean any of this when he says walk in the light. Are you living in submission to the word of God? I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now. Are you feeling a little overwhelmed? I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. John Wesley once said, the great founder of the Methodist movement, he says, my my framework for preaching is I love to overwhelm you with law and rescue you with grace. So let's do that. John is not preaching perfection. John is not saying that a mark of authentic Christianity is perfection. In fact, John explicitly says the opposite. He explicitly leaves room for sin in our experience of sanctification. That's why he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boy, not one amen. It's amazing. 
If we confess, Greek word confess, homo legeo, homo legeo, homo legeo, homo legeo, watch it means, it means to say the same thing. There's two kinds of people in this room when it comes to confession. One kind of person, when we sin, we say less about our sin than what God says. We downplay it, we diminish it. Well, okay, it was pornography, but it wasn't an affair. Humiligeo means to say the same thing. I don't say less about it. I say what God says about it. It's sin. But there's another kind of person in here. Your issue is not saying less about your sin. Your issue is saying more about your sin than what God says. So you sin, and here's what happens. I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I'm disqualified. That's not what God says about you. Friends, couple the grace and forgiveness of God, pair that with his omniscience, his all-knowingness. Before God saved you, he knew everything you would ever do to break his heart. And he still said, I'm in. I'm, I'm in. I mean, that's like me coming to you on your wedding day. You coming to me on my wedding day, and I'm in the green room, and I, you know, I got the tux. Back in the day, we wore tuxes and cummerbunds and boats. Anyways, we're, we're back there, man, and there's a big screen TV, and you say to me right before I go down and, get, and step into covenant, here's everything Corey will ever do to break your heart. And God says, I'm, I'm still in. Sign me up. Sign me up. I want to be careful with that. That doesn't lead to cheap grace. And then what does he say in verse 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love it. The first time he uses the word cleanse is actually verse 7. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. Here's what he's saying When I receive the cleansing forgiveness of Jesus Christ, I'm restored vertically and horizontally. Two stories and I'm done. Matthew chapter eight. Jesus is coming down from the Sermon on the Mount. And a leper approaches him. You you do know back then, leprosy was the worst thing you could ever get because it ostracized you from, from community. And when you came within 50 feet of people, here's what you had to do. You had to announce yourself, unclean, unclean. He comes to Jesus, Matthew 8. He says, Lord, if you are willing, not if you're able, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus does the unthinkable, the socially taboo. He extends his hands and he cleanses him. He heals him of his leprosy. And then he says this, go and show yourself to the priest. Why? Because the priest had to sign off. And when the priest said, you are now clean, two things happened. You could now go back to the temple and worship God. Prior to that, you were ostracized from the temple. No fellowship with God. But now that you're clean, you can go into the temple, rush into the temple and worship God. And now you can move back into the neighborhood. You you have been ostracized, cut off from the camp, cut off from the community. But now that you've been clean, you've now been connected vertically and horizontally with the family of God. 
And that's the exact imagery John uses. Sin rips at the fabric of relationship with others and with God. But when we receive his forgiveness, there's restoration. This week, I was with a bunch of church planters and I'm talking to this one church planter. He's planted a church in, in the Midwest and he's just sharing his story with me and, you know, how's it going at your church? And oh, it's going great. And, you know, I was in jail, and, but the church is going great. And he mentioned being in jail a couple of times like that, just a little, little passing thing. I was like, hey, brother, I got to stop you right there. How do you go from jail to church planting? I don't have time to tell you all of his story, but it's, it's an amazing story of the power of the gospel to change lives. Here he is. He drops out of school at the age of 12. His rap sheet, he says, it was 27 pages long. He's living with his girlfriend, gotten her pregnant, talked her into an abortion. They're living together. She gets pregnant again. He's feeling the pressure now because... That was a horrible experience, the abortion. Now we're deciding to keep it, but now I gotta figure out a way to put food on the table because I'm 19 years old. And so I decided I'd start robbing drug dealers. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. He goes, yeah, Brian, it might sound crazy, but when you think about it, it's kind of a safe thing to do. Like, who are they gonna tell? He said, so we walked into this one drug dealer's house and we didn't think that he'd have kids there. When everything was done with, there was a murder. He says, I didn't pull the trigger, but because I was there, I was looking at the possibility of, a, of the death penalty. He says, in the sovereignty of God, when they throw me in jail, there are too many people in that jail so in the sovereignty of God, he said, they put me in solitary confinement. I'm like, what? Solitary confinement? That's the sovereignty of God? He goes, look, man, I didn't have nothing else to do. I'm there for 23 hours a day. I get out for one hour. I'm going crazy. Nothing to do. And then he said, there's a security guy, a guy by the name of Warren. One day, he puts a a Bible in my cell. It's one of those little New Testament Bibles, he said. He said, man, I dropped out of school when I was 12. I can barely read, but I picked that thing up and I start reading and a couple days later, I get to Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews three says, today when you hear my voice, harden not your heart. He said, I didn't have any fancy the theological terms. All I know is something was happening in my heart. In that jail cell, he says, probably the worst conversion prayer ever. In that jail cell, man, the spirit stepped in. And then the mess started to happen. He said, I go to my lawyer because he says, in hindsight, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's in me and I had pleaded not guilty. I said, I, I, lawyer, I just need to let you know, I, I know this sounds like a jailhouse conversion, but I'm a Christian now. I participated in that. I got to plead guilty. He says, you do know they can kill you. He says, they want to kill me. That's fine. 
I go to be with Jesus. So he changes his plea. At his sentencing, he looks at the mother. He says, all throughout the trial, the mother had been chatty, chatty, chatty. And, but he says, look, Jesus is in my life now. I'm, I'm confessing, I'm repenting. He says, what I did to your son, what I was a part of, that was horrible. And he says, ironically, in the sovereignty of God, when it was her turn to speak, and she'd been speaking her mind the whole trial, but when it was her turn to reply to me, she had nothing to say. Long story short, they put him in jail. He gets his GED. He gets out a few years later, goes to Moody Bible Institute with a real hunger and thirst for scriptures. And now he's leading a church and baptizing new converts on the west side of Chicago. And he said, and the funny thing is, he said, the funny thing is, Brian, we have a ministry to police officers. And we sat there and shed tears over the power of the gospel to change lives. If your testimony is, I came to an altar, I prayed a prayer, but nothing's really changed. That ain't the Jesus I know. That ain't the gospel I know. So Father, I pray for two people right now. I pray for the person who's here who's never made a profession of faith. They have never opened their lives in surrender and submission to you. They've just never done that. I pray, Lord God, that today is the day that they say yes to you. I, I pray after service says, I will be down front and many of our leaders will be down front that they will come and that they will put their yes on the table to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I surrender and I submit and I follow you. But I think there's another kind of person here today. They have they have said yes, they come to church, they might even lead a small group, but there's just really no change. Same old, same old. There's no evidences of grace. We don't believe around here in loss of salvation. We don't think the question is ever, did you lose it? We think the question is, did you ever really have it? So Father, would you, would you save them today? Would you step into that elder brother, elder sister's heart, life, and revolutionize them today? Change us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.